This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of Richard's affiliates. We're going to be talking banking on today's show. We've had a lot of reports coming out, and banks and financials are one of the key areas of the market this year with talks of rates moving, and we're going to go deep on the sector with, with an analyst from Baird, David George. Um, but before we bring David on, uh, Professor, some volatility. Your calls have been spot on here with volatility. How are you reacting to the markets? Yeah, we shouldn't be surprised. Um, over the weekend, I mean, we opened Monday with the 10-year uh, at uh, 190. It's uh, now down to 176 with, with uh, volatility. There's the, the hedge demand has come in, but the two-year is above uh, 1%. Um, uh, uh, a lot of hawkish talk. Now, next week, it's going to be important. Uh, we have a Fed meeting. Now, it's not a dot plot meeting. Uh, it's a regular meeting. But uh, the the tone of the statement and particularly the tone of the uh, of, of Chairman Powell uh, in the news conference that follows is going to be very important. And we will report on that um, on Friday uh, in our meeting about that interpretation. I think he's got to be hawkish. The signs are just not good. Oil, as we know, uh, uh, went above its October high. Now, gasoline lags oil by about uh, three to four weeks. Uh, it is beginning to get up, move upward again um, strongly. Uh, this is not good for inflation and not good for public sentiment. Um, I just checked the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. Uh, it is 40 to 50 percent above its pre-pandemic high. It has broken through its uh, September-October high. Um, there is no general softening of commodity prices, and there's no general easing of the labor shortages uh, that we uh, see. Uh, it's not just COVID, although that will help. It does. The good news, of course, it does look like the wave, particularly in the Northeast, on Omicron is fading. Um, and I think as it fades, we're going to get more people out. But yeah, there'll be more workers out there, but there'll be more consumption and demand and, and uh, you, uh, on the other side, demanding products. So um, uh, I think the Fed must hang tough. Uh, and uh, I would expect us to hear that next week. That means for the market, a continuing trend, the exact rotation we talked about the least hit have been those that have been the value stocks, those that are giving income. Those are the ones that are hit the least. The most, of course, are that are hit the most are, uh, of course, the, the the very, very high priced. Um, uh, what you could call them, you know, pandemic darlings of the of 2020. Many of them down 50 to 70 percent with really very little. Um, relief in, in that. They're breaking through technical levels, um, so you're getting a lot of people jumping off. Yeah, we, even this morning we saw one of the pandemic darlings uh, report on the pandemic, not unclear on their profits, and, and, and stock down 25% with, with Netflix being a key story. Is that part of your story of the rotation? Well, I, you know, Netflix, I, I think, has more solid than a lot of uh, the type of things that uh, uh, that we see in in the ARC uh, uh, world, um, uh, Kathy of Kathy Woods, um, Netflix is a, it, it really brings in the question. There's a lot of competition in streaming. Um, uh, there's a lot of the question about whether their models, they, they, you know, they have these serial hits, but then they're not building a franchise on them. It's not like Walt Disney where, you know, you can sell billions of dollars of product that based on Mickey Mouse and everything else. Or, of course, uh, the, the Marvel set, 
which has a franchise. Uh, the problem, it, 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 it's a hit and miss. They produce a lot of shows. Some are great, uh, like the Squid Games and others fail. Um, will they have to branch out? Will they have to go more towards movies with stars? Uh, there's, a, there's a question. There's competition there. So I'm not an expert in that field, but it brings into question whether, um, uh, you know, I was talking to someone that, yesterday that was taking a big hit on Zoom, and he, he said Zoom is so fantastic, but it's so it, it, everyone's catching up. It doesn't have a moat around it that, uh, oh, I'm going to pay for this above everything else. And uh, if you don't have a moat around it, you might be the first person in and win on that day, but you're going to be eroded uh, soon. And I think that's basically what's happening. You've got to have something that continues to build the franchise and has the moat around it. And um, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think it's more surprising in terms of Netflix. One has to remember, Netflix had an all-time high in October, and it's really just back to levels that it was earlier this year. I still think it's a fantastic franchise. I think people who have it are going to keep it for a long time. But the question is, new people, especially with their price increases, are going to wonder, can I get other streaming services cheaper that uh, are going to give me what I want? When you go back to your big picture on the year, I mean, you had said uh, we were going to have volatility. It's playing out exactly like you said. As you think through the rest of the year, and and you're still saying the market. I mean, people are a lot of the comments I'm seeing. Smart people who watch inflation, watch the Fed, saying we're at peak hawkishness. In in your view, are we at peak hawkishness? We still have more hawkishness to digest, and and yes, how does that do. translate to more volatility? We have more hawkishness to a. Uh, uh, because I think the inflation is worse, and I think that they're not going to do a four increases. Um, and I've been saying this for a long time. So what we're going to see is these, you know, I call them taper tremors. Well, it's not just taper. You can call them rate tremors. And that's going to be rotation, rotation, rotation. So the whole market will tend to go down. The, the value side and the cash side is going to hold up the best. By, by the end of the year, I still think that the S&P has a chance for a gain. But let's face it, it's, 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 I mean, it's top-heavy with great companies, Microsoft, Google, Netflix, uh, Apple, Amazon, Facebook. Um, I mean, uh, they're making money. Um, uh, but they're, uh, when you have a, uh, a, a re-rating of the discount rate, um, uh, rotation upward of that discount rate, all long-lived assets, and even uh, even value stocks are long-lived compared to cash and short-term, are going to have a little bit of revaluation problem. Um, but ultimately, as I said, I still think the S&P has a chance to go up. So I think X, S, uh, X, the tech sector, the S&P will be up. Uh, this year, with the tech sector being 30, 35 uh, percent, that's going to be a challenge for the rest of the year. Still much better than bonds and, and better than fixed income. Yeah, well, we started the year with a negative on, on those. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But you've been, been spot on. We'll keep coming back to you every week. Looking forward to the report next week, Professor. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Have a great week. Um, let me turn the, the conversation over. Uh, as, you, as we've been talking, big theme of the year, rising rates. And one of the sectors, you could say, at the heart of this question is, is financials and banks. Um, so we're excited to have David George Baird, senior analyst covering U.S. banks on Behind the Markets for, for the program. David, welcome to Behind the Markets. Hi. Uh, good afternoon, Jeremy. How are you? Great. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, maybe uh, tell our listeners, uh, you're, you know, as a, a banking analyst, you tend to pr- publish reports on, on banks and institutions, but tell our people a little bit about yourself, how your background, how you got to Baird, so they can learn a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I, uh, uh, again, uh, David George, and I'm with uh, Baird, and I've been uh, with Baird for 14 years, and I've been covering uh, banks and financial services companies as an analyst for that uh, period of time. Uh, I was with uh, a competitor for seven to eight years prior to that, and then I was actually in the banking industry as a corporate banker for about seven or eight years. So if I'm thinking about this, it's about 30 years or so in banking and financial services. And we 
published research um, on the, the banking industry and, and banking companies for largely uh, for both retail and, and institutional clients at Baird. And um, that's about it, Jeremy. So happy to be with you and uh, look forward to, uh, to talking through uh, financials this afternoon. Well, so as as you think about it, uh, how much of it comes from a macro perspective? I mean, everybody's talking this macro story. You heard Professor Siegel's narrative. He's, he's probably on the more hawkish people you've you've heard from, but you could tell me if I'm wrong there. What's your sense on how much is macro, how much is micro this year? Uh, and then, you know, if you have any of those macro views, if they differ, or what's your what's your baseline starting for for looking at the group? Yeah, it, it's it's a good question. It, we we typically think about um, financials both both from a macro and a micro perspective, and and as you suggested, there are particular points points in time where macro is more of a relevant driver than micro, and and I think we're in one of those uh, periods. Um, and and as you mentioned, I think the main macro factor. Imp- I think there's probably two. The first is obviously, as you discussed with uh, Professor Siebel. Um, the prospect of, of higher interest rates and the potential benefit to uh, financials uh, and banks in particular. Uh, but furthermore, there, there's also been, um, from my perspective, a, a money flow um, as rates have gone up. Um, it's been negative for longer duration assets like technology stocks or higher multiple stocks. And there's been a lot of capital so far in 2022 Um uh, flow from growth to value, uh, and obviously financials are, are one of the big components of that uh, of that sub uh, sub index. So there's been uh, big, a couple big macro factors, and I think this year um, rates and, and macro are going to be the main the main drivers as we go through the year. And I'm going to drill into a bunch of these questions, but it, it, certainly the performance has already started to reflect that tech sell-off and in coming into into banks. Maybe it's as simple as that. But do you have any other supporting points on on flows? Is it is it uh, as simple as the performance monitoring, or are are we actually seeing the money rotate? Are you seeing the sector flows, capital flows, or, or how are you thinking about that that money rotation? Yeah, we um, we track uh, we track money flows. Um, we don't follow it uh, every day, but anytime we have a big move in financial stocks, we, we tend to take a closer look and, and get a sense as to uh, money flows. And, and obviously, as you know, passive investing has become a big a big driver of, of the incremental performance in, in equities, and we have seen unprecedented levels of flows into. Um, ETF instruments such as KRE, XLF, KBE, uh, and related uh, financial ETFs. So there, there's been very significant flows um, into those and out of instruments such as QQQ. Right. So there, so there's the, the ETF rotation that is happening. Um, so that that is interesting. Um, in in terms of the macro, do you have a house view of of the Fed when you when you're forming your baseline views of the sector? Uh, is is there a house view on rates and how that's going to then impact your your micro themes? Yeah, we don't. Baird, as a um, as a firm, we don't really have a chief economist. Um, so, as analysts, we obviously have to kind of have our own our own view and our own perspective. We we tend to use the forward curve as our as our the beginning of of forming our views, and then we may be tactically or nuanced different, differently from the forward curve. And, and the forward curve today is implying roughly four hikes. And um, that, that, that is our general baseline. Um, we, we're assuming three this year uh, and then one to two in 2023. So it, it's obviously a very dynamic uh, process and, and, and with respect to the Fed. It's, it's very easy to to sit here today and talk about hikes, uh, but when the Fed actually hikes and then you see the um, the impact or the, any kind of collateral impacts on markets and uh, and uh, the economy, um, it, it, it will be something that we obviously keep an eye on. But but we tend to usually operate with the forward curve as our kind of beginning point. You're going to have to bring the professor out on your road shows because he's uh, he's definitely <laughs> on the on the curve here of, of where do people are where is the curve going? He's uh, he's aggressive. Um, in in terms of um, so as, as you think about the 
let's talk about the the actual rates uh, and and you think about long rates and short rates and do they move together? There's these called parallel shifts of the short rates and long rates moving up together. There's will the Fed invert the curve, which is a commentary we're talking a lot about on this show that we think the Fed could will ultimately usually inverts the curve through their hiking cycles. Um, talk about that curve and how that impacts the different banks uh, or, or how you think about it as, as, as a whole. Yeah, um, it's and, and we, we get the question from investors or, or various market participants, when, when rates go up, what happens? And as you mentioned, Jeremy, I think it's important to note or delineate between short rates and long rates. And um, short rates obviously have both both ends of the curve have an impact. Um, in the near term, we're of the view that hiking on the short end will have a very meaningful positive impact on the bank revenue outlook simply because of all the liquidity that's sitting on bank balance sheets. Uh, banks have the most significant liquidity that, that uh, I think ever. Um, loan to deposit ratios, which is a metric we use to gauge um, liquidity, uh, is roughly around 60 to 65 percent, and that is the lowest uh, that I can remember. Um, I recall in in the 20, 2010 to 2012 time frame when loan to deposits were almost 100 percent, and uh, in the 90s there were times when it was well over 100 percent. So banks have more than ample liquidity, um, and deploying that liquidity into loans is is going to be, we think, a key driver of revenue growth for banks in, in 2022. The shape of the curve um, also is an issue as it relates to medium to longer term lending activity. So lines of credit, credit cards are very much priced relative to prime, um, but uh, equipment loans, real estate loans are, are more geared towards the five, the five year, the 10 year treasury. So, so movements in the curve, um, to the extent it flattens, it tends to have an incrementally um, worse impact on bank profitability. Uh, bank management teams would, would rather see the curve shift in a parallel fashion. And as you mentioned, and as Professor Siegel mentioned, that, that rarely happens. In fact, I don't know that that's ever happened. So every time the Fed has traditionally hiked, they've come close to inverting the curve or certainly have flattened the curve some. Um, and typically, the reason for that is, as, as, you, as you probably know, is market participants on the long end are anticipating the economy six to 18 months forward. And if, to the extent the Fed tightens, um, oftentimes you see that long end uh, come down from a yield perspective. So it'll be fascinating to see how things play out. We're, we're in an environment with unprecedented monetary stimulus. And, and I think the sooner the Fed takes that away, um, the better, because there are risks and misallocations of capital that, that can emanate from rates being too low uh, for too long of a period of time. Well, let's uh, go drill into a few of these things a little bit more, but uh, let me introduce our guest. We're talking with David George, who's the Baird Senior Analyst covering U.S. banks. And so, so David, when you think about that loan-to-deposit ratio and key loan growth being a driver for earnings, is there demand for loans? Uh, is, is one of the reasons that, that people don't need loans is they're flush with cash and there's a lot of cash in checking pots and, and in corporate coffers or what's what's going to drive the loan growth demand for these banks um well i think the uh in terms of loan loan growth and loan demand um there i think there's a handful of drivers on the consumer side the um withdrawal of uh, all the federal stimulus programs that were were implemented in the 2020 time frame those are all starting to play out and, and um, move out of uh, consumer checking accounts. So as um, and employment is obviously very good and spend activity is robust as well. So that should drive fairly good, we think, consumer loan growth. Probably one of the bigger drivers of loan growth that we see um, in 2022 is likely to come from the corporate part of the market, um, and in particular, commercial and industrial demand for working capital or lines of credit. And one of the big um, uh, negative impacts on loan demand during the pandemic uh, has been related to supply chain disruptions. And companies, um, it's obviously been uh, well publicized, and then some companies that can't get inventory 
um, they, they don't need to borrow for that inventory if they can't get it. So to the extent that those supply chain disruptions ease, um, we, we think companies will will borrow more to buy inventory, um, obviously, as it's available. And I think because of the nature of the pandemic and the, the significance of the, of the disruption that, that I'm referring to, companies will probably run with a little more inventory than what they're traditionally accustomed to, uh, to running with. So because of that, um, I think commercial is really where you're going to get the most loan demand here. That that is interesting, uh, and and in terms of when you think about the, I guess so. There's the the revenue items, and so there's the the loan demand being a key thing. Is there any other revenue things that you believe will be in a, a catalyst? Um, I think the main revenue driver is going to come from loan growth and manager's margin improvement with the Fed raising rates. Fees are 30, 30, 30 to 35% of, of bank revenue, um, and the fee story has actually been quite good, particularly for the large banks that are in the investment banking, um, uh, in the investment banking field, and that has been a big, uh, big driver for growth for a lot of these companies. So I think we're going to transition from fee growth to spread, ev- to, to spread revenue or net interest income growth in, uh, in 2022. And that net interest margin is it's, it's effectively what they can they, – they have a portfolio of things like their loans and then there's their cost of capital and is the idea that the loan, the, the income they're earning on the loans is going to outstrip their, their cost of capital? Um, yeah, basically your net interest margin in, in simplistic terms is what your yield – is what well, your yield that you're receiving on your assets, so that could be securities or loans, minus your cost of funding. And when rates are at zero, um, you, you, we're not in a in a situation where where people are going to pay money to keep their deposits in banks. Um, so banks have a limited ability to pass on those lower rates once we get to zero. So what what should effectively happen is the Fed raises. Banks will probably lag that deposit pricing benefit uh, and 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 capture that extra carry income. Uh, so it, as the the consumers get a hit here a little bit, they, the consumers would always keep up with the the Fed hiking uh, Fed hiking rates. That's where the banks earn their their margin. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. It, it's uh, and and banks are obviously providing a service, and uh, I think they they will expect to get paid for that service. Um, in terms of the, as you think, so the earnings growth driven by by this spread income and, uh, and and positive loan growth, when you think about the total earnings growth for, and, and I, we could go into some, are there banks that you like more than others? But as you think about the whole sector, uh, do you have a sense of how you're looking at earnings growth for the sector as, as one of the key drivers of, of, of valuations and prices? Um, well, earnings growth it, it obviously is always a driver of stock performance and, and how we think about um, how we think about companies. Well, one of the you know, earnings growth for banks is actually going to be somewhat challenging in 2022 and 2023. They, they will be able to grow, but it will get it will be challenging largely because uh, most banks have been actually releasing loan loss reserves over the last year. So during the pandemic, banks took very large. Uh, provisions for credit costs and um, because of all the concerns about uh, the pandemic and its impact on credit quality. And, and once the uh, vaccine was was put in place, in addition to all the various government programs, we've seen banks release significant amount of reserves and, and that all of those have made their way into the bottom line of a lot of these banks. So we're going to transition from fees and provision relief to more traditional um, growth driven, as I said, by an interest income and, and volume growth broadly. So, um, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and, and when you think about the valuations in the banks is, as you think about how you are, are, I'm sure each bank has its own dynamics at, at work and, and different factors that drive the, the valuation there, but what are the, the, the few valuation metrics you look as the most important <laughs> gauges when you're determining is a stock cheap or expensive and uh, and we can talk about those a little bit. 
Sure. Um, we look at a, lo- a bunch of different valuation metrics, and, and banks are, as you know, cyclical in nature. So because of the cyclicality of their, of their businesses, and, and the, the cyclicality emanates from both movements in interest rates as well as movements in credit quality. Um, so we like to think about banks and think about financials broadly um, on a normalized, what we would call a normalized or through the cycle earnings profile or uh, return on equity or return on assets profile. So we look at metrics such as price to tangible book value, price to book value, price to earnings, price to pre-credit earnings, which kind of controls for the cyclicality and credit costs. So um, we look at a bunch of different metrics, but I, I would say price to earnings, price to tangible book uh, would probably be the two that, that we consider the most. And, and by those metrics, is your universe as a whole looking looking on the cheaper side, expensive side, about fair? Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, bank, bank stocks have done, as you may know, extremely well over the last 12 to 18 months. Banks were one of the top performing. I think banks were up over 40% in 2021. Uh, versus a what a 28 29 percent return in the s p and and banks to start the year have significantly outperformed the broader market I know up until a couple of days ago banks were up 12 thirteen percent on an absolute basis and the s p down on the year so banks have been running hot uh, for some time and and um, while we feel good about the fundamental outlooks that the valuations have um, as you suggested the valuations have Move to, I would say, fair, if not a little, a little above what we would consider to be uh, fair value. So we we tend to be opportunistic and kind of take and tactical on how we think about individual stock recommendations. And and all else equal, we we think the group is actually a little ahead of itself at the moment. Well, that that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it definitely. I think the money rotation is is as as you started has, has become the big macro story. Of the year, and the question, I guess, is going to be continue to see how does that big macro story play out, and uh, and and is that money just uh, rotate from tech to financials as a classic example? That's going to be very interesting to watch. As you think uh, about, yes, th- ab- oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, in terms of the reactions that we've been seeing, so you mentioned they were hot to start 2022, and then you started to see some of these big banks' reports. What are the themes of these reports that, that sort of kicked off the earnings season that you've you've seen uh, as hot-button issues? Um, well, I mentioned uh, loan growth has been a big, I think, one of the big focuses um, in the fourth quarter earnings that we've seen so far. We're probably... 80% through the earnings season um, on a real-time basis. So loan growth is very topical, and, and we have seen um, a very encouraging sign as it relates to loan growth. I think probably the big – one of the other factors that I, I don't think has um, has gotten a lot of attention and, and something we've been talking about over the last several months is expenses. And um, banks – I think financial services investors have become accustomed to fairly limited expense growth um, out of the – banking industry. And that's partially a function of um, improving efficiency with technology and, and investment in technology, as well as uh, branch reductions. Um, obviously, we've seen banks been net net closers of branches over the last 15 to, to 20 years. Um, but there is absolutely a war on talent. Uh, there is wage inflation um, throughout the uh, white-collar employment spectrum, and banks are no different. Um, so there is some wage inflation. There is also a need to <clears throat> invest in technology. There, obviously, between financial technology players, um, other non-bank financial providers that are trying to infringe upon some of the products and services that banks offer. Um, so, in an effort to, um, in an effort to uh, compete with. Um, to compete with that, they're having to invest in, in technology and, and cyber. Um, and that, is, that has been, I think, a, I wouldn't say a disappointment, but I think, um, I think the street assumed that all of this interest rate benefit would hit the bottom line, and that, I don't think that's the case. And I think that's why we've seen a more subdued uh, reaction to earnings so far. 
Well, that's good. I, I want to f- pick up on this thread of the cost and the technology. I think these are all very interesting issues right there. Uh, and I want to drill in a little bit more on some more details. Uh, we were talking sort of costs and expenses, David. And I, I think you, that was some headlines that we saw. It's also bonus season. So people are talking about comp as, as a line item. There's a, a Wall Street Journal story this morning on the, on the sort of cost of the big banks and, and sort of that bonus season. But they're also talking a lot about the engineering, the tech expenses. And I think some of that's the cyber that you mentioned. But what else are, and, and when they're looking at tech and engineering expenses, I think Goldman in particular was, was, was down on, on some of these d- different items or you may have a different view. But w- what are the big expenses coming on this tech and engineering side? Um, well, on the tech side, there there is um, product uh, product development uh, investments. I think that are being that are being made by a lot of financial uh, institutions. Um, some of the buy now, pay later companies that are trying to infringe upon banks. I think there's been some investment in that. I think there's been investment in um, retail banking technology um, and products. Um, uh, and, and ways to, um, I think, integrate the payments ecosystem, both for consumers and for corporate. So I think there's been a lot of investment there. And um, just technology broadly has become a big, um, has become a big, uh, uh, a big area of focus for, um, for the sector at large, if, if you want to stay competitive uh, in an environment that, uh, um, where revenue growth can be challenging. So, um, and then as you said, I think wages uh, are a big are a big factor as it relates to uh, human capital and um, finding customer facing um, bankers, both on the commercial side, the retail side, the investment banking side as well. Um, the cost to bring in good people um, is continuing to go up. So. Um, and we're faced in an up until now, and we haven't seen the Fed raise rates, but um, the, the, the product work that banks sell, which is money, um, their ability to, to charge for that has been limited given uh, the Fed zero rate policy over the last couple of years. So there, there's, there's some inherent pressure there. What do you think about this sort of what they call trad fi versus DeFi? So the traditional finance world versus decentralized finance world, and and its impact on banking, and how much are you focusing on these new technologies? And maybe it's more the traditional payments apps that are are generating the buzz and and, and getting that to merge with the banks. But how do you see the sort of tech side of this stuff uh, impacting your universe? Um, well, the, the the banks operate. In a uh, a very a, a very large market from mortgage to consumer finance to credit card to auto to commercial to commercial real estate to payments to checking savings and the like and there are always new entrants into the market uh, trying to infringe upon that market share so um, and some of the um, monoline consumer finance companies that, that maybe you're referencing. Um, would be an example of that. And, and that, again, I think in order for banks to remain competitive, especially against, you know, and I'm not a technology expert or financial technology expert, but it, when you're competing against companies that, that are encouraged to lose money um, uh, just in the spirit of growth, uh, that makes to that, that, that can be, uh, can be challenging. So, uh, so JP Morgan, for example, um, who is consistently investing um, up to ten billion a year in technology and cyber investments. They were pretty explicit in their fourth quarter earnings report that they are going to continue to invest aggressively uh, in tech and, and human capital. Um, and uh, we would expect that 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 kind of mantra to continue. And and do they say which part of the tech stack they're going after? Or has it been just vague? Uh, it's across the board. There's, as you can imagine, there's some competitive intelligence that I think companies are are reluctant to share. Um, oh, yeah, always, <laughs> because you're you're because you're you're obviously in a in a commodity business in many ways, and and trying to compete with uh, some of your peers. So th- there's not always a significant amount of detail as it relates to uh, we're spending X million on this, X million on that. It, it's it's more of it's presented to the investment community generally in aggregate rather than on a, on a line by line basis. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. In in terms of of so we on, on other things impacting the cost items, uh, you know, it's coming out of the financial crisis, you had a lot of regulatory issues where banks took front and center stage of regulatory concerns. Um, is how has that evolved over the last few years? Do you see anything on the on the horizon from a regulatory front that might impact uh, your your banking universe? Um, well, the regulatory. Um oversight issue is always something that that can be a sentiment factor for financial services investors for financial services investors um, anytime there's a change in in the administration um, there tends to be some speculative some speculation surrounding the, the regulatory backdrop um, I, I would say one of the main uh, positive byproducts that, that emanated from the financial crisis is the, the the companies themselves, because of the annual stress test, and, and as you may know, regulators do a, a credit, generally a credit and markets related stress test on the top 30 or so financial companies each year. And I think that process has made uh, taken a lot of risk out of the sector, um, and, and as a result, the, the industry is very well capitalized. And, and I would even would even venture to say. They're very uh, utility-like in nature, and I, I say that as a positive, and that their returns um, are, are pretty stable, actually, over time. Interest rates can go up and down. Credit can, can oscillate between good times and bad, but, but the reality is through the cycle, most of these companies generate pretty reliable uh, and consistent earnings, um, and, and we would expect that to continue. You know, I think one of the big questions through those stress tests was limiting the capital returns. And you're just talking about how well they're capitalized. I think one of the key drivers of some of these, when you look at who who was driving buybacks, the banks uh, thought their stocks were cheap, or we're just saying that the buyback policy was a little bit easier than the dividend policy. You got to commit to a dividend, and buybacks are more flexible. How do you see capital returns uh, through dividends buybacks shaping up across banks, and um, and 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 do you, th- do you think there's even more room for buybacks? Are they too overcapitalized? Um, I think you'll see uh, um, <clears throat> the, the the degree of over like, overcapitalization is, is more pronounced in what what we would call the super regional group. Um, so companies like U.S. Bank, um, Fifth Third, Key Regions, um, PNC, um, rather than the likes of Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, um, due to their due to their size, they need to retain. They're they're forced to retain a little more capital. But I would say capital return, meaning buyback and dividend, will will, will be a very meaningful part of the bank investment story and bank investment. Uh, theme over the next decade. Um, I, I would expect that you'll see close to 100% of earnings over the next decade return to shareholders in the form of either buyback or dividends. So I think that will be a, uh, a, a very meaningful part of the, um, the thesis surrounding uh, financial services investing. Well, and that's that's a really interesting number as well. Like so that they the question is can can and people think of that they don't think of companies that can grow over time if they're returning all their capital shareholders. But is, is, do you think that if they're returning a hundred percent of earnings through dims and buybacks, are are they still making investments? We just talked about these companies making investments in tech and engineering for growth. Like are they still they're still going to drive growth plus return a hundred percent to dividends and buybacks? Um, well, I think it's it's financial services companies, or particularly banks. Um, they are they're not growth companies. So, um, if you're looking for growth, um, you know banks can give you respectable growth. Um, and when I think when I say growth, I mean revenue revenue growth. And, and earnings growth is going to bounce around based on um, what credit quality is doing and, and so forth. But um, I think a reasonable revenue growth expectation for banks would be something on the order of four to six percent over the next decade. So a GDP plus 100 basis points or 200 basis points would be kind of my baseline expectation. So um, with that as a backdrop and the amount of capital that um, and that earnings would be obviously after investments that they need to make. Um, the, the, these companies are so profitable. Many of them will do 
15 to 20% return on tangible equity, they, they generate a significant amount of capital. Um, and when your growth is 4 to 5%, um, you just don't need that much capital to grow. So, um, so yes, I, th- there is the ability to generate respectable growth with fairly low risk um, with, with meaningful capital return at the same time. Those are, are very interesting uh, dynamics of how to set expectations of, of for the economy as a whole and then and then your universe here in particular. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with David George Baird, Senior Analyst covering U.S. banks. David, and you, you mentioned uh, on this capitalization question uh, sort of the regional banks versus or the super regional banks versus – the sort of you know the mega mega banks uh sort of the siffies uh, the um systemic the systemically mm-hmm. important institutions is is you think about the opportunities and i was going to ask a, a related question on large banks versus small banks is there a group that you'd say you're the most optimistic on if you had to say picking within the universe what what sub sub industry or sub coverage universe you would be the most uh, optimistic on yeah um I would say all else equal, and it rarely is, of course, we, we would have more of a, a positive bias towards um, the, the super regional or regional banks. And uh, the reason for that is I think the, the big banks are great, um, very diversified in nature. Um, we're a little concerned about the uh, – if, if you think about the various revenue drivers for banks – um, we obviously talked about loan growth and the prospect for higher rates and the positive implications of that. The regional banks are, are the biggest beneficiary of that. Now, the mega cap banks will benefit from that, too. Um, but with the Fed withdrawing liquidity and getting tight, we, we, we're a little worried that that will weigh on capital markets activity. So that that could put a damper on the revenue growth at some of the largest banks that are a little more dependent upon um market-sensitive revenues uh, for growth. So the regionals don't really have that headwind. Um, so that, it, all else equal, we would have more of a positive bias towards um, towards those uh, those regional or super-regional banks. Right. Um, in terms of the other things impacting the, this, the, the industry, uh, how much are they talking about sort of uh, the pandemic now in their back to work policies? Is it just a to the point of being super regional? Every everyone has got a different policy. Is it uh, how, how are you seeing people respond to the pandemic and, and how that's affecting costs and, and different issues? Um, certainly. It, so I think on the cost side, it's, it's mixed. Um, clearly, there's there's. Um, well, first of all, I think the industry did a phenomenal job, um, and this is obviously almost going on two years ago now, but the phenom- phenomenal job, at particularly throughout the, throughout the pandemic, but, but especially at the beginning of the pandemic, in the midst of all of the uncertainty and concerns about health and just a lot of unknowns, the industry really responded well. Um, particularly through the PPP program, and, and many of these loans were processed by people working out of their homes, and it, it the, the industry did a phenomenal job and in, in responding to the needs of small businesses through that PPP program, and it was executed flawlessly, and, and capital and money found its way into uh, consumers and businesses' pockets in a very rapid fashion, which, which was... Uh, uh, banks during the last crisis were part of the problem, and in this case, they were part of the solution. So um, early on, they really did a great job in terms of um, fulfilling and executing upon those needs. As it relates to the back-to-work policy, it's very mixed. Obviously, customer-facing people in the branches in, in most cases are back-to-work. Um, customer-facing bankers are, I think, in many cases back-to-work or maybe have a hybrid um, approach. I think most companies – if you're not customer facing, have a kind of a hybrid or um, option depending upon what the uh, employee wants to do. So clearly um, offering that flexibility from an employment perspective is something that I think, uh, um, unless it's absolutely necessary, I think uh, more and more companies are embracing the um, the uh, flexibility and ability to retain talent by, by providing uh, a handful of work options for their people. So it, it really runs the gamut. 
How how is Baird taking that approach? What are you guys personally doing? How have you found it uh, for your work style? Um, it's been uh, I, I'm kind of an old school, and, and first of all, everyone's different. I'm kind of old school and have traditionally been uh, very focused on going to the office. We I work in a small office in St. Louis, so we have not had uh, nearly the attendance that that we we used to have. Uh, but it, it it's been. Uh, it hasn't really affected our productivity and, uh, you know, knock on wood, the firm, you know, Baird had a, a record 2021, uh, both from a firm level as well as, well as our equities business. So um, we, all of us kind of had to um, uh, rally around each other to, uh, to, to find the best way to serve our clients. We really just focused on serving our clients uh, in the best way possible. Yeah, we. If my my personally speaking, we we've we've gone to a remote first environment. So I used to have to commute to New York mm-hmm. from Philadelphia, and uh, I haven't been doing it. We've been doing you know Zoom and Teams calls, and even our show now on Teams. Uh, and you know it's been it's been quite fine. Um, but I know that we are definitely working on a, a new office location in New York. Hopefully that that's coming soon, um, and uh, mm-hmm. to give people options. So that new hybrid hybrid is the word I, I think of the day. I think you're seeing that across a lot of these places. Um, in terms of where the uh, one of the issues we talked tech technologies and I, I think one of the things we we focus a little bit on is is crypto and and the banking system on crypto it remains a tough thing um, in terms of I'm curious if, if you see the banks offering access to crypto services um, crypto's hot today or, or sure not so hot it's uh, crypto's crashing today but as you think about providing money into the ecosystem it still remains challenged there's only a few banks really servicing that market uh, I wonder if you how you look at that and 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 banks trying to get involved in that ecosystem is going to be remaining a narrow group or do you see more and more banks trying to view that as a growth opportunity Um. It's a great question. If you're looking for a crypto expert, I am definitely not not it. Um, I've uh, maybe I'm just too uh, too old and experienced. I, I don't really understand crypto, to be honest. Um, I think in terms of the banks and serving the crypto market, I think initially there was a fairly significant reluctance in terms of under you know just a lack of understanding um, of the crypto market. I think that that the large banks. Are trying to find a way, and I think are, and, and if if their clients want the ability to conduct business in from a trading perspective in crypto, I think that's something that's being offered um, when appropriate. But but it's not. I think as a um, as a general strategy, I, I don't think it's a, a segment that that a lot of banks are investing significant amounts of, of capital and resources into. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting to see what services they offer. I mean, I, I remember seeing a survey study saying, you know, of course, it's it's in the Twitter world and the crypto ecosystem. They they always you know you never trust a survey, but it was something like forty percent of of this respondents to the survey would change banks if they offered the crypto ecosystem. Um, so it's sort of interesting if that becomes something that that certain banks are using to to lure new customers. Yeah, I think it's just it's going to depend on. Yeah, you're right. It's it's going to depend on uh, what crypto. I guess the price of, of cryptocurrencies do. So I, again, like I, I'm just not not an expert and don't uh, don't really don't really understand it to be honest. <laughs> We'll take that conversation offline. We'll see if we can talk more about it. Um, in, in terms of, we've talked a lot of issues, and I've, I've covered a lot of uh, things I wanted to in our final three, four minutes. As you think about key issues that you're focused on, uh, anything that we haven't talked about that you'd, you'd want to make sure we bring up? No, we've really covered a lot of the main main issues. Banks, um, as you mentioned, Jeremy, are, are kind of leveraged bets on the U.S. economy and, and interest rates, and they're a great way to play um, the growth in the uh, American economy. And, and I would say having been in banking or covered the sector for, for 30 years, I think from a risk perspective, uh, this is the best environment for risk management that, that, I, can, that I can remember. So, um, the main risk in banks usually emanates from from bad loans, and and I think that the industry, from a, a risk management perspective, is is in as good a shape as it's ever been. So, as an investor, that's something that gives us a lot of uh, a lot of comfort as we think about uh, as we think about these companies. 
Yeah, it's really interesting thinking about how they were the source of the risk of the 2009 financial crisis. This time around, it was so different. And uh, I I like your point Mm -hmm. on that. I really liked when you framed the returns and revenue growth coming from GDP growth plus plus a little bit of return. You've got this very nice high returns on tangible equity as a way to, to play that. Uh, and then just this utility type um, payout of the 100% return on capital with the dividends and earnings, that seems to be a profile in this in this year of of people questioning you know profiles that sort of high duration assets versus low duration assets that we started the show with, and Professor Siegel talking about the rotation away from megatech to low you know lower duration people returning cash flow through dividends and earnings. This seems like the group. That on a macro level, you can understand why the valuations are a little bit premium given that macro setup. Exactly, exactly. So, it, uh, I think the group is uh, it's it's very well managed and has got uh, ample liquidity and capital to uh, to withstand uh, almost any uh, any macro environment. If, if people, you mentioned your, your your research can be found for institutional investors as well as retail. If people want to stay in touch with what you're writing or, or your views. How do they find more, and where can they where can they find a little bit more about what you're working on? You know, that's a great question. Um, I think it can be done through uh, uh, our Baird uh, Baird Private Wealth Network, and uh, you go to rwbaird.com. Um, and find uh, a financial advisor in your uh, market. Um, I think that would be that's a way to uh, to get access to our work as well. Yeah, this is uh, as as a theme for what we're focused on the next few weeks here on behind the markets. We're going to be focusing on this rotation. Um, you know, we we talked a lot or a lot about it this week in, in sort of energy and and some of these cyclical sectors uh, benefiting from higher rates, benefiting from inflation. We thought banks were one of the really interesting categories. Next week, we're going to talk with a strategist who's talking about, again, these big rotations away from tech towards value. Uh, that's going to be a theme. We're going to come back to energy as a focus theme. We're going to be talking about the Fed. Uh, for the foreseeable future, I see all year, it seems to be the story of the day. So I, I appreciate David George taking time with us uh, on Behind the Markets. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.